Well, I'm Josh. Uh, if you're a visitor today, glad that you're here. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, we're going to continue uh, in our series in the book of Romans. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8. Uh, and we're going to consider verses 5 through 11. And really, uh, this is a continuation of what we began discovering last week, which is what does it look like to have life in the spirit? And Paul has established the gospel uh, and the gospel apart from the law, uh, that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law, that faith in Christ puts us into new relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. Uh, we go through Romans 7 and we see that even though we are a part of this new creation, this new reality as born-again believers, we still have to deal with the fact that we live out life in fallen bodies, with fallen minds, uh, in a fallen world which creates this war, this civil war within us. The flesh battling against the spirit and the spirit battling against the flesh. But at the end of chapter seven, Paul says this really beautiful thing. He says, who will save me from this body of death? And he says, praise be to God through his son, Jesus Christ. That the gospel, it brings us back again and again to the gospel, a total dependence upon the complete and absolute finished work of Jesus which releases the power of the Spirit in us. I often say that the only thing that we truly have the ability to do as Christians uh, when it comes to the freedom that we've been given is to surrender, is to continually lay our lives at the feet of Christ. And I think the Spirit-filled life is the outcome of that daily surrender. It's why Paul will, at the turning point in this book, at the beginning of chapter 12, when he moves into the practical kind of pragmatic ways of living out the Christian life. He says, therefore, based upon everything I just got done saying, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices. And he says, this is the essence of worship. So today, we're going to really talk about what it means to think God's thoughts after him. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, that is a powerful proclamation that's stated um, over the church and what we are to be about, that we are to be a people whose minds have been captivated by Jesus whose lives are influenced by his spirit and which gives us the ability to discern the multitude of narratives that are moving around us at any given moment in history. That we have a new perspective on how we interpret the world. The problem is, is that in the current age in which we live, I think that we very much are the product of what uh, Jacques Ellul stated uh, in um, Modern Presence in the World, a book that he wrote in 1948, which his concern with the rise of technology is that the technological age is going to actually make it harder to be a Christian because he argues that it'll actually make sin increasingly collective. And what he means by that is, is that the more interconnected we become as a world, the more we truly become responsible for our brothers. We do become our brother's keeper. We can't escape the sin of others in new ways that we have never had to deal with in history. And Alul didn't even see the rise of the, of the internet. He died in like 94. 
Uh, I mean, he didn't see, he definitely didn't see smart, smartphones. And if he had only known how, how uh, prophetic his words would be, this idea that, that our sins are more and more collective. I mean, you think about it. I just received a text message yesterday, thought it was a group text that, because I'm on all these group texts for Portland prayer team, Portland evangelism team, our staff group text, which is called Peep Dogs. This is a lot of unnecessary information that makes it very difficult to know when something important is being stated. Uh, but then I get this group text, I think it's a prayer thing, and I open it up, and it's like a, some sort of like sex promotion invite. I'm like, how, and I just found out, oh yeah, someone broke into my email last, like my email got sabotaged. All my email, it, emails have my phone number at the bottom of them. This is this collective sin that we can't even escape in our own homes. The amount of time that we spend on TikTok and Instagram and, and different social media platforms, we are constantly being bombarded. The amount of time that we spend watching the news and reading the news, these news feeds. If you're like me, you don't read in normal books anymore. You read on your iPad, which means that you're constantly getting pop-ups of, of you know, new clips of, of information that are coming at you. All of these things create what I would refer to as an ADD nation, a distractibility that actually prevents us from experiencing all that God would want us to experience, a restlessness that is never satisfied, a, continu a continual pursuit of, of a peace that will not be found in the things that the world is continually presenting to us. And this is why it is so important that we learn how to take our thoughts captive into the obedience of Jesus. What we think about when we are free to think about what we will, that is what we are or soon will become. Now, there's a book um, that was written that, uh, by James, um, James Smith uh, called You Are What You Love. And he argues that we aren't, we aren't what we think, we are what we love. But I don't think you can separate those things out because we think about what we love. And what we spend our time thinking about ultimately will define what we actually worship. Because whatever we are fixated with, and that's the terrifying thing, especially when you're fixated on negative things, on, on life-sucking realities. I know what it's like to have a season of severe anxiety. All of a sudden, my God, if you will, was my anxiety because that's all I could think about. It overwhelmed me, it consumed me, uh, and, it, was, and it, took, it took the life out of me, literally. But I know what it's like to be fixated on things that aren't life-giving, and I know as well what it's like to be fixated on things that are life-giving. In fact, I had, um, <laughs> I actually just looked out, uh, a friend here whose dad is a, a therapist met with me and he said, uh, when I was going through my anxiety season, he said, Josh, you're a very intense man. And I'm sure when that intensity is applied to life-giving realities, you're an unstoppable force. That intensity, however, if it goes into a dark place, will also be an unstoppable force. And that just put the fear of God in me in a way that I think was really healthy of how essential it is that we are captivated by Christ. Proverbs 23, seven says, for as he thinks in his heart, so he is. This is the reality of our lives. This is something that is important for us as we enter into an increasing, uh, there's a new way of approaching existence that has very little to do with history, 
uh, has very little to do with truth because truth is, uh, is no longer objective, it's subjective. And our new way of engaging the historical moment that we are in is through storytelling and narrative. And as important as those things are, I think that this speaks to the sort of self-centered nature of Western culture, Western civilization, that every person has the right to define existence for themselves. We don't have to concern ourselves with what happened in the 20th century because everyone knows that history doesn't repeat itself, which is very false. And yet that seems to be the reality. We have, or live in a society that is increasingly growing illiterate. The average American reads right now at a third grade level. Something like 70% of college graduates never read another book after they graduate from college in the US. And that just speaks to the distractibility, to the, the inability to focus, the inability to give ourselves fully to something. Now, you're looking at, you know, someone call me distracted, I prefer Renaissance man. Um, <laughs> but I know what it's like to be consistently interested in a multitude of things. But the one thing that continues to anchor me in my existence, Jesus, my family, my church, those things anchor me and allow me to explore lots of different things as long as they serve the central thing. That's the thing is that I don't think Jesus is saying you can't think about anything else. The question is, is everything that you're doing, is it coming under his lordship? That's really what it means to think the thoughts of God toward him. And are we interpreting the world that is consistently confronting us through the lens of the gospel or are you now interpreting the gospel through the lens of the world? And I think this is one of the greatest challenges that the church is confronted with today is that the church is collapsing left and right to its orthodoxy, surrendering its orthodoxy um, for the sake of making itself somehow more acceptable for modern sensibilities in an age in which everyone has the right to define for themselves what is right and wrong. I mean, we, I feel like we live in the book of Judges and each man did what was right in his own eyes. And yet, this is not the way of the gospel. Chesterton stated it best in 1908, he said an open mind which most people say we need to be more open-minded. He said an open mind is really a mark of foolishness, like an open mouth. Mouths and minds were made to shut. They were made to open only in order to shut onto something solid. Um, it's a very powerful quote. What we put into our minds will define what comes out. And our, our thoughts always cluster around the secret treasures of our hearts. Uh, fixed thoughts upon Jesus, what I like to say, building memories of God. Is your yesterday filled with memories of Jesus? What a powerful idea that is if we were to actually, to actually play it out. Well, let's talk about what Paul has to say here in Romans with that as a foundation. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, five, five and six it says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. It's really important whenever you read the word flesh uh, that you simply think of it in terms, especially in the letter of Romans, and sinful nature. So, I mean, this is really what he's saying, is that this, the sinful nature. Um, and, he, and he says this, he says, those who, 
have their mindset on the flesh, um, desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh, this is fascinating, is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and is peace. This truly speaks to uh, what is the life of the Spirit and how does it play out in our lives as followers of Jesus. And it speaks to the manifestations of a mind that is absorbed by the Spirit. And the first thing we have to answer is what is a Spirit-filled mind actually look like? And I think that Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, is the starting point for us. We often think in terms of when we talk about the Holy Spirit, people can get weirded out because maybe they've come from a really extreme charismatic background and they've like, it was really unhealthy and all of the emphasis was on the supernatural and healing and signs and wonders and all those things. And it's not that I don't believe that the Spirit can do miraculous things through the, through the body of, of Christ. It's true, but the, but the outworking of the Spirit-filled life is not the ability to do magic tricks. The outworking of the Spirit-filled life is defined by the fruit of the Spirit. And keep in mind when Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit means it's not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Spirit who, as we yield to him, has the ability to produce in and through our lives. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Notice when he says the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. What's so fascinating to me is that right now peace is the thing that our world seems to be clamoring for more than any other thing. I made a very bold statement recently in which I stated that I believe that much of the church would surrender Jesus in a heartbeat if they thought it would bring lasting peace. And because the kind of peace that the world is desiring is a peace that allows each person the right to be their own God, the ability to live amongst others without compromising any of your own personal convictions. And I think that the spirit of Antichrist is trying to convince us that that kind of peace is possible. But the problem is, is that it is not possible because when, when our lives are controlled by the flesh, by the sinful nature, not by the regeneration of the spirit, but when we try to define for ourselves what will make us happy. So this is a great example. Portland, stressful place to live a lot of destruction, a lot of complicated issues that are causing people to move out of the city. As people move away, what are they looking for? They are choosing to move their families to a place that they believe will bring them what? Peace. But that peace that they so ardently seek in those other places is not to be found because no matter where you live, you still are living in a fallen world with fallen minds among fallen people. Not only that, if Satan died today, you will continue to sin tomorrow. So if peace is something that we're trying to pursue through our own efforts, inevitably it is going to lead to disappointment, to restlessness in new ways. Because every time you overcome one, one dilemma in one's life, it, I always say that, that, mess, that 
the working out our salvation with fear and trembling is, is like playing a continual game of whack-a-mole <laughs> where you're just like one sin pops up, you smash it down and then another one pops up in its place and it, it seems like there's this continual battle. This is the natural reality of that internal war that we are dealing with with why if we want to have victory, it is not gonna be found through the methodologies or the ideologies or the political movements of this age, which none of them can satisfy the longing of the human heart. And if indeed we have the truth and the truth is in Christ and he himself is not, um, information to be learned but someone to be surrendered to, then we must find our peace and our shalom in Him and Him only. It's the importance of right thinking. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He may instruct Him, but we have what? The mind of Christ. Now, none of us would be comfortable in this room saying, I think exactly like Jesus. What Paul is saying, though, is the very mind of Christ is available to those that have been born again. That the Spirit comes. Jesus said, it's good that I go to the Father, for when I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said. I've often said, he can't bring to remembrance what you have not first put into your head. He can't bring up the words of Christ if you haven't been, he can't be a good teacher if you're a horrible student. Because the issue isn't, is the Spirit of God a good teacher? The, the, the issue is, is that are you a good student? And we can't learn if we're not willing to take the time to take the information. And the Spirit will illuminate the Scripture, but it's our responsibility to read it. And as we read it, do we yield to it? God, show us your thoughts. Teach us how to commune with you. Help us to enter into intimacy with you. This is the importance of right thinking and what we have available to us. Let this mind be in you, writes Paul in Philippians chapter 2, 5, just to show you how important the mind is and how it's consistently addressed. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he's speaking of Jesus as the, as the picture of, of humility. He humbled himself, taking upon the form of a form of of sinful flesh, he entered into the frailty of the human experience and to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Paul says, this is the mind that should be captivating you. It's, it's a, it, you're captivated by the cross. You're captivated by the suffering servant who is now the resurrected king. And as we humble ourselves before God who has made it his business to enter into our sinful existence, because he is not content to exist without you. That should create in you an ever deepening desire to know him more. Tozer said a statement um, in his book, um, God Tells a Man Who Cares. Not God Tells a Man Who Cares, but God Tells a Man Who Actually Cares. Um, I'm gonna write a book called God Tells a Man Who Cares. <laughs> um, but in that book, he says, every Christian is as close to Jesus as they choose to be. Now, people always ask me, what do you believe about free will and, you know, God's sovereignty? And I always argue, uh, whatever freedom we think of, it is not the American ideal of individual rights. And whatever freedom we're talking about, it is freedom within limitations. 
Uh, and not only that, I would argue that before I knew Christ, when I was dead in my sins and trespasses, I was not alive, which would mean that I was not free. It took the Spirit of God intervening into the deadness of my spiritual existence and opening my eyes up just enough to say yes to the yes that he had already proclaimed over me in Jesus to be truly set free. So I would argue that it is not until one is a believer that they actually begin to experience real freedom. But the moment you have real freedom is the moment you have the possibility of making a mess of your Christian life. Because spiritual freedom brings about responsibility. This is why Paul says, do not utilize your freedom to serve the flesh. If you've been born again, why would you, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why are you trying to perfect in the flesh, in your sinful nature, what God has begun in the spirit? I think that we have this, often this idea that God saves you, it's his work, you know, you just do whatever you want because he's going to have his way and do whatever he wants in and through your life no matter what. And they, it's this kind of idea of like efficacious grace that it's like it's irresistible in a way that you will be transformed whether you want to be or not. But I've watched too many Christians, pragmatically, it just isn't the reality of what I have experienced in, in the 20 years of ministry. And that is that people, I believe, have met the living Christ, but the... But the power of the voices of this age, their minds became fixated upon the things of the world and, and they lost sight of their savior. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a gradual slope that one moves further and further away from Jesus. It's the dangers of drifting because drifting doesn't take any effort. But only dead fish, as Malcolm Muggeridge said, goes with the flow of the stream. And we're supposed to be alive. And to be alive in Christ means that we have to begin to think right because the world needs to see the manifestation of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. I love this, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Colossians 3, 2 is, you know, <laughs> I have often heard it, um, it stated, you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly use. I don't know about you, but I have never actually met that person. I think I've met plenty of so earthly-minded they're of no heavenly use. Uh, but it's rare that you meet someone they're like, they're so in love with Jesus that they just aren't helpful. Uh, I've met people that are really spiritual. I've met people that are uber-religious. That's not very helpful. I'm talking about spirit-filled, someone that is so in love with Christ that when you talk with them, you feel like you have spent time with Jesus. That's how Luis Palau was for me as a friend. He was a man who seemed to just exude, and, it, and the closer he got to death, the more he exuded it. The closer he moved toward heaven, it was like he already had part of his life there. Darcy and I had a, a couple of friends that we got to know when we worked um, uh, at Solid Rock, which is now Bridgetown this couple, Tom and Isabel Moore, they were 92 years old. And Isabel, they had been believers for 75 years. And I remember Isabel would, would come, they would come to my Wednesday morning Bible study at 6 a.m. and we'd give Isabel a little comfortable chair to sit in. And she would just sit in the front and just like look at you like she was looking through your very soul. And when she would pray, I remember she prayed for us once at dinner and I opened my eyes and she was just looking straight at me with these piercing blue eyes. And I'm like, 
Oh, she, can, she sees more than she should be allowed to see right now. Um, but there's just this sense of the this, this spirit-filled life. There was a holiness, and the holiness did not manifest in harshness. It manifested in a beauty, in a kindness, in a gentleness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I think that that, that beautiful picture, when Alan Redpath was, was dying and he was in a... In, uh, in a home, uh, the great story of another pastor going to visit him, and when he went to leave, he, he stopped at the nurse's station. He said, take good care of that man. He's special. And she goes, he is special. Um, and he goes, I'm curious why you say that. And she said, every time me or one of the other nurses go in to help him with anything, we always leave the room feeling clean. What a powerful proclamation of the Spirit's movement in our lives. And what was really beautiful about that story is that Alan had just got done confessing that due to his stroke and as he was getting sick, he was really struggling with foul language. And he was having all these thoughts that were plaguing him that weren't of God and it was really upsetting him. And the pastor that went to visit him was deeply disturbed because Redpath was like his hero. And he's like, oh, don't say, you can't, you, you can't have these problems. And, he, and then Redpath says, never mind that, let's pray. And he said, then the old man, the spirit-filled the, the spirit man took over in this prayer life. But I think that that's such a beautiful picture that the spirit can work in us and through us in spite of us. And what's at stake is not your perfection, it's your yieldedness. That's, that's where God can show up in spite of us. I, I like what it says here. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So when you put these together, you put these verses together and you ask the question of what does it mean to live in accordance with the spirit that we have our mind set on the things that the spirit desires, then, then it's pretty simple. That the fruit of the spirit is the thing that should be manifested in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That, that the activity of, of the spirit-filled person is a continual witness to Jesus. That the spirit is the shy one in the Trinity who, if we are to test the spirits as the scripture declares, because there's a lot of churches that are talking about the Holy Spirit, but if the, we aren't testing the spirit, the spirit's number one priority is he is a missionary spirit who is consistently redirecting focus to Jesus himself. And so are we being pointed to Jesus? Is he illuminating the scripture? Is he, is he protecting your mind from the various voices that, that are constantly being, we're being bombarded with? This is why it says in 1 Peter 1.13, therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I, I think it's interesting that Paul also uses a similar language. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. That the sober-minded, a lot of people ask me questions about drug use and especially in a state like Oregon where things have become, uh, where it's no longer prosecuted. And what is the position of the Christian? And I think that the position of the Christian is, is we should constantly ask in whatever we do, am I capable of meditating upon Christ while I'm doing it? I think that people are looking for like hard lines in the sand to draw, but what I wanna say is that what's most important is that we have to ask the question because there are lots of things. You'll be like, oh, well, I don't do that, but 
I'm, I'm saying take a look at your life. What are the things that you engage in and what are the things that distract you from Christ? And whether that's drugs or alcohol or whether that's entertainment or whether that's your job or your spouse or your kids, anything that you think about supremely is what you worship. And to be sober-minded is to be a mind that is continually disciplined in its devotion to King Jesus. And he has given us the spirit to do it. Thinking in the flesh. When it says in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, it says, The mind governed by the flesh, however, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And this is not talking about who's saved and who is not saved. What it is saying is that whether you're saved or not saved, if you're functioning in the flesh, you're functioning in hostility toward the very God who saved you if you are indeed a believer, that you cannot please God when you're functioning in the flesh. This is why it says without faith in Hebrews, it is impossible to please God. Because what pleases God is a dependence upon him that allows him the right to be himself in and through you. So our faith in Christ is meant to lead us toward a total dependence upon Christ. It's not just the, the spirit-filled life is not the life that believes that Jesus exists out there in the ether. The spirit-filled life is the life that believes that Jesus is present in the midst of his world and that he is through his spirit reaching the world and through his spirit speaking and communing with us. And I think when you look at the manifestations of the mind absorbed by the flesh, that it would be a passion-controlled, lust-controlled, pride-controlled, ambition-controlled. When you look at the spiritual suicide of the list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, when it talks about the works of the flesh, what I find so troubling about that passage is that, A, the fruit of the Spirit makes all the worst TV shows ever made. And the, and the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh, it's not even called fruit, they're just works. The works of the flesh is what makes every great movie, every great piece of literature, it's all driven by the brokenness of the human experience. And I, I think that one of the things that we like in our film and television and why we're so captivated with things that are contrary to the Spirit of God is because it validates our own brokenness. It makes us not feel crazy at how crazy we are. That's why Chesterton said, he goes, I reject the modern realistic novel over the fantasy novel. He says, for the fantasy novel tells us, and this was in 1900 that he wrote this, the fantasy novel tells us what a sane man will do in a crazy world. But the modern realistic novel tells us what an insane man will do in a dull world. And I think that that is very much the spirit of modernity, that we don't, even like, we don't even like our film and television unless there's a complete embracing of the many streams, hyper-victimization, uh, political correctness, all these things that, that are hot topics. We are being just bombarded with these voices, hypersexuality. Uh, gender fluidity, all, whatever is, the, whatever is the, the new movements 
that are coming toward us to, that will become realities in our society. Our entertainment has been pushing that, those agendas probably 10 years before they ever get to legislation. That's why there are no battles. That's why the Christian right was the most failed, miserable attempt at trying to, trying to politically motivate uh, a Christian nation, uh, which you can't legislate morality. One must be born again, and our allegiance is not to any political system, period. It's to Jesus and his kingdom. And so I, when I look at this works, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, Harry Potter, I knew it, <laughs> hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. <laughs> One translation says, and things like these, which I think that's the best category to show us that this is not an exhaustive list, that this is just this extensive list of just the fundamental muck of life that we love to watch in our entertainment. We always wanna see people that are a little more messed up than us to validate our existence. And what's terrifying about this list is this list is not about those who are outside of salvation. Because if you're like me, I'm like, I'm like oh, oh good, uh, no, no adultery, that's good, that's good. Uh, okay, fornication, uh, uncleanness. I don't know what that means. I did not shower this morning. Lewdness. Uh, I just I start looking at these, this list and I'm like, oh, jealousy, outbursts, <laughs> selfish ambitions. All right, you win, Jesus. You always do. <laughs> it's meant to show us, it's what Paul just got done saying in chapter seven, in my flesh lies no good thing. This is the reality that lies within the redeemed man and woman if we're not spirit-led and we're not spirit-filled. Because the spirit-filled life is the spirit's ability to guide us and direct us and even, and even uh, cover us in a way that Jesus himself is able to work through us in spite of us. And the power is, is that there is power over sin in the Holy Spirit, if we, any of us were capable of living fully surrendered lives, we would be able to live the way that Jesus lived. But in this world, in this age, that is not going to be our reality, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't on our knees every day, give ourselves to King Jesus and say, Lord, you make yourself known. And it's also why I argue so strongly the spirit-filled life must be a spirit-filled community. It's the church together that it's all of us being spirit-filled together that begins to manifest the presence of God more strongly than our individual brokenness. It's why mass evangelism is so effective. It's not because of the evangelist. It's because thousands of people gather in which thousands of them are already believers. And when non-believers experience thousands of Christians gathered together at the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit works in a very, very powerful way. It's, 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 it is, it's palpable. I stood on the stage and experienced it. It was electric in the air as Luis Palau did an altar call to over 35,000 people in Spain, a country that's never had a revival, and thousands of people got saved. But it, was, it wasn't even Luis, it was like he was invigorated, a man who was dying of cancer. The, there, there was electricity in the air 
Um, and it was just God supernaturally manifesting in a way that brought, it created a thin space between heaven and earth. And I think that that's the power of the spirit-filled community, which is always important for us to remember because sin is still a problem that we're going to have to be dealing with. The fruit, of the, the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh are always going to be at war within us. And they're coming, it's coming at us from a million different directions. Our mindset concerns our fundamental attitude toward God. The reason the mind of the flesh is death is because it is hostile to God. Surrender to the Son is really the only thing that pleases the Father. So finally, living in the Spirit, he says this, you however are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. I think it's very important that Paul does not mince words. He's restating exactly what Jesus himself said to Nicodemus, that unless one is born again, they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That regeneration is the, the necessary reality. And this is why Paul, he says, we're called to test the spirits. We're also called to examine ourselves. It's not I've seen some pastors who push on this so hard that one never feels truly saved. And I think self-examination is important, but self-analysis is paralyzing. That's why McShane said, for every one look you take into your own heart, take 10 looks to Jesus. Because if you spend too much time navel-gazing, you're not gonna be happy with what you discover. But the real question is, is, is have you been born again? And, and, and there are ways that we can know that we've been born again. When you ask the question of what did it mean for you when you prayed to receive Christ? Were you praying, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that you actually died for the sins of the world. And I believe that you died for me. Um, I, I, I believe in that. Because that's not, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is I am lost, help me. I believe in you, and what I mean by that is I believe you alone can save me. That it's not my belief that you're real, it's my belief that you have the power to change my life. And I am willing to put everything, my whole weight upon that reality. I am going to trust in you, Jesus, in such a way that you have the absolute right to be yourself in and through me. That our belief in Jesus, is, we're not front-loading the gospel here. It is, it is, you can't be saved if you don't realize you need a savior. And you can't experience the Christian life by believing all the right things but never trusting in the very one who has come to give you life. Because Jesus isn't interested in what you know, he's interested in who you know. Because the mind that is captivated by the spirit is the mind who has entered into intimacy with the king of the universe. And this is why I always push so hard that it is about relationship. Salvation in its essence is restored relationship. Sin in its essence is the destruction of relationship. We are made in the image of a relational God. His being is relational. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a community within themselves. And our salvation brings us into that communal experience. So this is where he says, this is what it means. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then 
even though your body is subject to death, even though there's, you still live in sinful flesh, even though the death rate's still one per person, because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness, a righteousness that came from outside of us. It's an imputed righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes from Jesus himself. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life, I love this, life. That's charisma. Literally, he gives life, charisma to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. I, I saw this with Luis went in Spain that night. He got up to preach. He was so sick. He was feeling really weak. And then it was his turn to preach. And it was like, he was like invigorated with the energy and zeal that he had when he was like 18. He literally ran across this massive stage to the pulpit and just his fist pumping up in the air and preaching. And I don't know what he was saying because I don't speak Spanish. But it was, I just, the energy and the joy and just you know, here's a man bent over by cancer and he's just standing upright in complete control of his body. And the control actually was a yieldedness to the control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought supernatural life to not only his words, but to his very physical being. For though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being daily renewed. And I think that this is one of the most beautiful passages. Christ in you, this is the condition of that liberty which is ours beyond the law. This is the solution of the riddle which religion sets before us with such intolerable precision. Because religion is constantly saying, you've got to live this way. You've got to take control of these things. You have to prove your worth to God. But the spirit-filled life is a life that recognizes, I can't save myself. The spirit-filled life actually is more aware of their sin because they're constantly allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal problem areas in their lives. They're not hiding in the darkness. They are coming into the light. The spirit-filled life is a life that is consistently returning to Jesus. The spirit-filled life is a life that recognizes that in spite of all my mixture, my brokenness, that Jesus did not come to set me free from the difficulties of existence. He came to set me free from the need to be free from them at all because he's in control. And I think that the motivating factors in life will be defined by what spirit we are surrendered to. And I just simply ask you today, are you surrendered to the spirit of this age? Or are you surrendered to the spirit of Jesus? Because Jesus alone transcends time as we know it. His life, death, and resurrection reaches back in time and forward in time and down into the depths of hell and up to the depths of heaven. And this is the power of the gospel. When we want to experience the re reality of Jesus, it's not you trying harder, but it's you surrendering your effort and, being, and having it replaced with God's presence. This is the beauty of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel, for the way that it transforms our lives. We do pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be a people transformed, ignited with your love, inflamed with a heart that burns to know you. And Lord, as it was wisely said, each one of us is as close to you as we choose to be. And Lord, if most of us are honest. We just haven't been choosing to be close to you. 
So many of our choices have to do with what we want for ourselves. And then we can't figure out why we feel so anxious, why we feel so restless. I pray, Lord, that as we examine our own intimacy with you, as we ask, are we a spirit-filled people? Would we even know what to do if we were truly spirit-filled? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come upon us in power. You would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, and that you would control our hearts and our minds in a way that allows us to be who we're truly meant to be. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that because of your spirit within us, we have available to us your very mind. May we know you. May we walk with you in all ways. It's in your name we pray. Amen.